We were singing the song that says, we welcome you with praise, and uh, it's good for us to know that God doesn't need our permission to come. I mean, he's already here. He doesn't need us to give him permission to do anything, and yet, um, how many also know that it's usually a surrendered heart and a heart that is open to him that he works in? Um, And so one way that we welcome him is certainly with our praises, but also with open hearts uh, to hear what he has to say and to respond to what he has to say. Jesus said as he addressed all the churches in, um, in Revelation 2 and 3, he often said, let the one who has ears to hear what the Spirit says. And so uh, that's part of uh, welcoming him is having a heart that's receptive to him, a heart that's open to, uh, to hear from him. And open to believe what he says and obey what he says and even be corrected by what he says and all these different things that we, that we need. Uh, God is a good father. Well, there are a couple of uh, passages that help shape my thinking and my goals in terms of pastoral ministry. Um, one of them is Galatians 4.19 where the Apostle Paul described his, his uh, zeal and his passion Uh, and his ministry as one that was, he describes like a woman in labor, right? He says, I labor like one in childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Like he he, he was laboring, he was working tirelessly because he wanted Christ to be formed in these believers. And they were believers. This is not talking about unbelievers, this is talking about believers, that Christ would be more and more formed in them because we have not, arrived at completion, have we, at perfection? None of us have. So that's one of the passages that just helps me think, okay, what is the goal of pastoral ministry? What's my aim? It's that. I want Christ to be formed in you. That's what I want. I want it for me too, of course. (laughs) Um, But I want that for you. The other text is from Colossians chapter 1, verses twenty. 8 and 29, here's what Paul says, Him we proclaim, speaking of Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And that's, I, th- I think of that as, okay, that's, that's got to be my aim. Laboring and toiling because I want to present you Of course, I'm with you. I want to be presented myself too, but I want to present you mature in Christ. And um, so, you know, here at the beginning of a new year, I've been thinking about that, and I'm I'm committing with with renewed zeal and with hopefully a firm reliance upon the Spirit to do that, to labor to that end for you. Uh, And I also want to talk to you this morning about what spiritual growth looks like for you. Um, There's so much wisdom in the scriptures that instruct us and lead us and guide us, direct us toward spiritual growth, toward growth in Christ-likeness or godliness. I think we understand that a Christian is someone, at least a Christian in this life, someone that's in heaven, this is different, but a Christian in this life is someone who is on the path of growth, always on the path of growth, always on the path of being renewed day by 
day. And at the beginning of another year, it's a good time for us to think about this most, more deeply. Um, certainly, we ought, we ought always to be growing and seeking to grow. It's not like our sanctification, our growth in godliness is subject to a calendar as though there's something magical about January 1st or something. There's nothing magical about that day. And yet, I think of God and his kindness and wisdom and grace, how he gives us new beginnings often, uh, a new day, right? Lamentations 3 says, God's mercies are new every single morning, which means a new day comes, there's new mercy for the new challenges you'll face that day. Think of a new week, and we gather on the first day of the week because Christians traditionally have done this since New Testament times, and we gather the first day of the week to do what's most important, to worship God together. And of course, think of a new year, right? For many, a new year comes with renewed desires to grow, grow in many different ways, to improve in many different ways. And I think that's generally good. I think that's a good thing, especially when they're good desires. Uh, Paul said to, to to the church at Thessalonica, he said, may God fulfill your every resolve for good. So when people make resolutions at the beginning of the year, if they're good resolutions, if they're godly resolutions, that's a good thing. And we ought to pray that God would fulfill our resolves for good and works of faith by his power. So that's a good thing. Especially if these desires, if these resolves carry through the entire year or, you know, at least for a period of time, not three days. (laughs) Right? The desire to grow in Christ is a spirit a Holy Spirit-worked desire, right? Men, if you, this year, if you, you want to grow in strength and godliness and leadership for your family and in the church, that is a good thing. Young men, if you have desires to grow up and be a strong man who can take a wife and lead a family, that's a good thing. Women and young ladies, if you have a desire to grow in godliness, and to develop more and more what Peter calls a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in God's sight, that's a good thing. Those are the kinds of resolves that are good resolves that we should expect God would fulfill in our lives as we set ourselves to them. Of course, we're commanded to grow. In the very last verse of 2 Peter the, the letter of 2 Peter, chapter 3, verse 18, here's what Peter said. Grow, and this is a command. This is not a suggestion. This is a command. He said, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, so this is a, a command to us to grow in grace and knowledge. And perhaps there's no clearer place, at least in my mind, in Scripture that describes the the, the key ingredients for our growth, both individually and as a church, and I want us to think about both, individual growth, growth as a church, perhaps there's no better place that shows us the ingredients for growth than here in Acts chapter 2. The reason I say this is because it gives us this snapshot of the early church and the way in which the Holy Spirit was at work among them when he was first poured out upon them. The Holy Spirit had been poured out, out upon the church 
God had saved and rescued 3,000 people that were added to the church and the early church set themselves to certain things, to do certain things. This new group of people brought into existence by the resurrection of Christ, now indwelt by the Holy Spirit, what were they all about? What did they set themselves to do? How was their new life shaped together as a body? That's what I want to take a look at. And so this week and for the next several weeks that I teach, I want to kind of unpack this. Today is kind of a general overview from this passage. In the next several weeks, taking a a more close look at these ingredients for growth, for your growth, for my growth, for our growth as a body. Here's what we see. The first thing that immediately jumps off the page is the word devoted. Devoted. These were not casual Christians. These were not Christians when it was convenient. These new believers were devoted, and they were devoted to four things. And it's these four things that I think we too must be devoted to. These are the things that the Spirit that indwells us would lead us and empower us to be devoted to, to grow us in Christ-likeness. So I ask you, do you want to experience the mighty power of God working in you and through you for your good and the good of those around you? Do you want that? Furthermore, do you, want to, do, you want, do you want to see God working among us? This church flourishing and growing in all the good ways that we want it to grow. Do you want to see that? Then we too must be devoted to these four things with the help of the Holy Spirit. Devoted to these things. Here's what they are. Verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The word devoted indicates a continual thing that they did. Okay? In fact, the New American Standard Bible expands, I think, appropriately when it says they continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. They continually devoted themselves to these things. And that's the point. They did this continually. They were steadfast in their attention. They were constantly diligent to these things. The New King James uh, says, I think I got this right, says they continued steadfastly in these things. They continued steadfastly in these things. Now, of course, it needs to be said, these Christians had jobs. They had families to care for, right? They had homes that they had to attend to, all of that. They didn't sell everything and become a commune, right? This is not the first monastery, okay? It's not like that. They had jobs. They had responsibilities at home, in the workplace, in their neighborhoods, and so forth. But the God of the universe had saved them had rescued them, had reconciled them to himself. And therefore, they devoted themselves to God and to his priorities. The lifeblood, I think, of of a healthy, growing Christian is 
devotion. We could use other words to commitment or whatever, but the word used in our passage this morning is devotion or they were devoted, right? What is a Christian but a devoted follower of Jesus Christ? That's what a Christian is. That's why the New Testament most often describes Christians, at least in the book of Acts, as disciples. Well, in the Gospels too. They were disciples. They were disciplined Devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Devoted to God and to Christ and to his agenda. And I think the lifeblood of a healthy, flourishing, growing church is devotion as well. So let's look at these four things that these Christians were devoted to, that we too must be devoted to. And my prayer is today and over these next weeks that the Spirit of God would breathe upon our hearts upon these truths and give us a firm, continued devotion to these things as well. First, we see a devotion to God's word. It's not a surprise, not a surprise. These early Christians were devoted, our text says, to the apostles' teaching. In other words, they were devoted to the word of God. The apostles' Were the represent- I, I shouldn't, they weren't the only representatives, but they were the most direct representatives of Christ on the earth. They continued his teaching ministry after he left. He, Christ had entrusted to them through the Holy Spirit teaching and instruction that the Spirit would bring to mind that they were to share and, of course, eventually write down as New Testament Scripture. We know that the apostles taught the Old Testament. In fact, when we think of what was the Scriptures for the apostles, it was... The Old Testament. And we know that they taught the Old Testament. It was Paul's ambition and custom in town after town after town after town. Everywhere he went, he would make a beeline for the synagogue and open up the law and the prophets and prove that Jesus was the Son of God, the Christ. And of course, the apostles also taught the things that Christ had entrusted to them that the Spirit reminded them of that's now recorded in the New Testament. It should be no surprise to us that this is mentioned first, that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching or doctrine or we might just generally say the word of God or truth. The Spirit had been poured out upon this early church, was doing phenomenal, amazing things, but... Surprising, maybe surprisingly, I don't know. They were devoted continually to learning and growing in their understanding of truth. And the apostles were devoted continually to teaching. It makes sense. How would these new Jewish Christians know more fully about Christ? It's as the apostles opened up the word and expounded Christ in Genesis and the Psalms and Isaiah and all throughout the Old Testament. Remember Jesus said to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he opened up the scriptures and pointed himself out in all of it. It's all about him. And for us, how do we know who God is but from the scriptures? Right? How do we know who God is? 
if, our, if, if we're blind to, the, to what the Bible says, it's through the scriptures. How do we understand his ways? It's from the scriptures. How do we understand his will for us? What's well, largely from the scriptures? I don't mean things like, should I live in this town or this town or go to the school? Or I mean like concrete, what is the will of God for me as a man? It's from the scriptures. Beyond mere knowledge, when we understand what the scripture is, the very words of God, we understand why this is imperative. Think about how the New Testament describes what the Bible is. It's the very exhalation. It's the God breathing out. It's what the Bible is. The God-breathed scriptures. When we understand this, then it makes sense that scripture is central and so for this early church, the apostles' teaching or doctrine had centrality. At the beginning, God spoke and created everything out of nothing. And we claim, and the scriptures teach us, that the word of God is God speaking. David shared earlier, what happened to David? Through the word. The spirit said, let there be light into his heart. Like at the beginning, that's what happened. That's what happened to you too. If we had eyes to see the treasure of God's word, and may he give us eyes to see it, we would continue steadfastly in it. We would. We would be continually devoted to it, and how blessed we would be if we were. What growth and strength we would receive. So what does it look like to be continually devoted to the scriptures, to what God says? Well, Deuteronomy 6 tells us. Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy. This, this is one of those pinnacle places you've got to go to over and over again because this teaches us about Discipleship 101. Here's what it says. Deuteronomy 6, starting in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates the totalizing aspect of god's word written on our hearts talked about all the time Right? When you're in your house, when you're sitting around the dinner table, when you're in the car driving down the road, when you lie down, when you wake up, may it be as a sign on your hand. What's that mean? May it inform what we do with our hands, God's word, as frontlets between our eyes, always before us, written on our doorposts and on our gates. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Charles Spurgeon said the following about John Bunyan. John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress. And if you've ever read that book, what I'm about to read from Spurgeon about him makes perfect sense. Here's what he said. This man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere and he bleeds Bibline. 
The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his very soul is full of the word of God. That last phrase, his very soul is full of the word of God. And it wasn't just his brain, it was his very soul was full of God's word. Brothers and sisters, this is the way of blessing. It is. This is the way of blessing. Psalm chapter 1, what's it say about the blessed man? How blessed is the man who meditates on the law of God day and night? He's like a tree planted by a stream of water. He bears fruit all the time. His leaves never wither, always green. He's always prospering. Of course, this is clearly not talking about being shut up in a quiet room for 16 hours a day and just reading the Bible. It's not. It is, however, talking about having our hearts and minds and very lives shaped by the Bible everywhere and all the time. I read somewhere that... uh, You know, sometimes people say, well, the the reason I don't read the Bible that much, I just don't have time. And I just say, that's a bunch of garbage. It is. Uh, I read somewhere that kind of an average reader, I mean average in terms of speed, could read through the Bible if they took 20 minutes a day. 20 minutes a day. Everyone's got 20 minutes. Get up early. Stay up a bit later. If you watch three hours of TV a day, there you go. If you're, on, if you're looking at social media a bunch every day, there you go. Even good podcasts. Listen to one less podcast a day. I'm saying even good stuff. The Word of God gives life. This is blessing. Now, I think we need to talk about the word teaching or other translations might say doctrine. The apostles' doctrine. Teaching or doctrine, I think, takes us beyond general good spiritual vibes. Like we open the Bible and we just kind of get some good feelings from it. Sometimes I think that's what we're looking for. I didn't really get much out of it. I think, we're, I think it's because we just didn't get that warm, fuzzy feeling about what we read or whatever. You know, reading Proverbs or Leviticus or maybe it's not so much. The apostles' doctrine and teaching takes us beyond that to a clarity of truth over against error. Good and healthy doctrine versus diseased and errant and even false doctrine. And I think this is necessary. I, don't, I mean, I, I do think this, but I think it's beyond question that this is necessary for the good, healthy, and growing Christian and the good health, and growth of a church. Sound doctrine or healthy doctrine is imperative. Without it, a church is like a garden without a protective fence to keep the critters out. Right? Without good doctrine and discernment that comes from good doctrine, it's like we don't, at nighttime, the critters come out and eat all the vegetables. Without sound, healthy doctrine, a church is like Excuse me, a church or an individual is like a person with AIDS. 
that is incapable of fighting off even a minor sickness because the immune system can't do it. There's no defense mechanism. Without sound doctrine, a Christian or a church is malnourished and unable to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Without sound doctrine, we are likely to be carried about by every wind of doctrine and easily deceived. So, if we would be on a growth trajectory, we must be continually devoted to truth. Uh, What Francis Schaeffer called true truth. Not your truth. (laughs) Not my truth. Not Oprah's truth or anybody else's truth, but true truth. So, Let's be devoted to God's word. Second, we are called to be devoted to the fellowship. Verse 42 says they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine or teaching and to the fellowship. The word fellowship, Greek word koinonia, perhaps you've heard that. The word simply means to share in common. In this context, it means to share life in common. To share life together. In other words, to be devoted to the fellowship, it means to be devoted to one another, to the people around you, right, to the fellowship. In verse 44, it says, and all who believed had all things in common. Now notice, this is not a general solidarity with all mankind. This is a particular commitment and devotion to believers. Of course, Paul says we ought to love everyone. The New Testament says that. The Bible says that generally. We ought to love everyone. But Paul does say in Galatians 6, especially those who are of the household of faith. And so I think that's what's in view here is this fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ. Look around you. It's the the fellowship of those around you right now. Now, the reason why we need, to, we need a renewed devotion to this is because, how many know that to be devoted to the fellowship is inconvenient? It is. It means getting up a bit earlier to get to church. It means uh, laying aside other interests at times. It means opening your home at times, certainly opening your heart, opening your pocketbook to help a friend or a brother in need. To be devoted to the fellowship imposes upon our comfort and our privacy. But to share life in common, of course, does that, and it is a glorious thing. It is a glorious thing. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book called Life Together, and he said the following in that book. He said, we must be ready to allow, and so this, remember we said we welcome God? This is part of welcoming him, okay? We must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. God will be constantly crossing our paths and canceling our plans by sending us people with claims and petitions. Right? He's, he's going to constantly be crossing out things on our calendar <laughs> and saying, nope. Nope. 
The one and other passages in the New Testament, I think, highlight the importance of this real devotion to the family of God, to the family of faith, to the local body. Here's just a sampling of some of these one another passages. What I mean by one another is all these passages that says, do this for one another, with one another, toward one another, be this way, one another. Here's what John 13, 34 says, love one another as I have loved you. Now, how did Jesus love us? It was inconvenient. Remember when he got down on his feet and started washing the feet of his disciples? That's the context in which he said this. Of course, the next day he was going to die on a cross, the apex of love. Love one another as I have loved you. Romans 12.10, love, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Ephesians 4.32, be tenderhearted toward one another, compassionate, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. James 5.16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. 1 Peter 4.9, this just gets, cuts right to the chase. Be hospitable to one another. This is clearly not for the casual Sunday Christian. To be devoted to one another is not for the casual Sunday Christian. Verse 46 of our passage says, Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Of course, this is a challenge because, as I said before, it imposes. But this is the path of growth. For you individually, as well as for us as a body, to give ourselves, to share our lives with one another and allow others to share their lives with us. We must be devoted to the fellowship. Third, we are called to be devoted to the breaking of bread. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread. Now, the breaking of bread could refer to eating together in each other's homes. And how many know that's a good thing to do? Okay, that's a good thing to do. We certainly see that in our passage. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. But it could also refer to the Lord's Supper. And I think it specifically does refer to the early church's devotion to the Lord's Supper, to the breaking of bread and communion, coming to the Lord's table. And it's not hard to see why these early Christians were so devoted to this. The breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, communion, was a memorial supper reminding these Christians of the basis of their fellowship. You read through this and it's totally clear. These Christians were committed to one another. They knew how to do fellowship. Deep fellowship. Not, let's get together and watch a football game. No, no problem with that. Not let's talk about the weather or anything like that, but deep fellowship, sharing with each other. The Lord's Supper showed them time and again the basis of that fellowship, the work of Christ on our behalf. 
How could these people be so united, many of whom had never met each other? Because they were united in Christ by his blood shed on the cross and the Lord's Supper was a constant reminder of that. I think it's amazing that you and I could go to a good Bible-preaching, Christ-loving, God-honoring church in Argentina and Iceland and Zambia or South Korea or Australia or down the street or up in North Dakota and gather to the Lord's table on the same basis with brothers and sisters and say, we are united because of what we're celebrating here. Not because we have the same hobbies. Not because we're wired the same way, have the same personalities or anything like that, but what we celebrate at the table. Christ, body, broken for us. His blood poured out for us. Their devotion to the Lord's Supper was a demonstration, really, of their devotion to the cross and glorying in the cross. So, the, the, the church was devoted to hearing the word of God, right? The gospel preached, taught, and the, the apostles' teaching, they were devoted to the reading of scriptures, no doubt, and they were also devoted to what Thomas Watson, the Puritan, called the visible sermon of the Lord's Supper. I love that. The visible sermon of the Lord's Supper, which is a mirror in which to gaze on the sufferings and death of Christ. And I would suggest the more we're devoted to this, the more the glory and power of the cross gets into our DNA. Brothers and sisters, may we too glory in the cross and be devoted to the breaking of bread. It's not just an add-on at the end of service once a month. In fact, we probably ought to do it more than once a month. Anyways, that's another. But it's more than just an add-on at the end. This is massive. Fourth and final, these people, these early Christians were devoted to, it says, the prayers. They were devoted to prayer. Amazing. I don't think this is referring to isolated individual prayer, though that's important as well. But I believe this is talking about praying with one another. They were devoted to praying together. And we see this happen throughout the book of Acts over and over and over again. The early church had a vibrant prayer life. There's no no wonder why God was dynamically working among them. They prayed in the temple. They prayed in homes. They prayed in prison. They prayed in private. They prayed in public. They were praying as they waited in the upper room before the Holy Spirit was poured out. They prayed when facing persecution. They prayed when they encountered the sick and crippled and when they faced intense opposition from the leaders, leaders, Jewish leaders. They prayed for the release of Peter from prison and prayers launched the first missionary journey when Saul and Bar- Paul and Barnabas were sent out. In other words, prayer was the fuel for everything they did. And so they prayed without ceasing. And they prayed together. And why were they so committed to prayer? Well, 
Of course, the Holy Spirit had come, was at work among them. The whole, and I would suggest any time in the history of the church, there's been, and Old Testament too, I, I think, any time there's been a powerful move of the Holy Spirit, it leads people to pray. They seek God. So there was that, of course. But in addition to that, the disciples had received enormous promises from Jesus the night before he was crucified that he would hear and answer their prayers. John 14, 13 and 14 says, "Whatever you, this is Jesus talking, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. That just seems like an open door, doesn't it? We, can, we understand that there are things that we would not ask Jesus for. It would be off limits. He would, he would be right and good to say, no, I don't think so. Just like if my two-year-old asked to hold my shotgun, I would say, no, you cannot, right? John 15, 7, if Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. That is a huge promise. John 16, 23 and 24, in that day, Jesus said, you will, you will ask me nothing. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. This early church with few resources and seemingly insurmountable ob- obstacles. They didn't have, they didn't have big, big donor class. They didn't have big buildings. They didn't have a big YouTube platform or anything like that. And yet, this early church shook the world and largely because they prayed. And their devotion to prayer, no doubt, was in huge part because God had promised to answer them when they called. And if we would see growth in our own lives and experience God working in and among us, we too must be devoted to prayer. It's a non-negotiable. Well, I want to spend just a few moments before we close uh, talking about the results that we see in this passage. The the, the results we see in, in this immediate passage are absolutely remarkable. One thing we see is that there was an awesome awareness that God was present and he was powerfully working. Verse 43 says, awe came upon every soul. So they were, they were devoted to the apostles' doctrine, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. Do you think there's too much awe among God's people? No. Reverence, a fear of God, a sense that the awesome and holy God who loves us, but he's awesome and holy, is among us. That's what they had. God was present. God was working. Think about it. When there's a devotion to the word of God, what's going on? People are coming into, the, into contact with a God who speaks. A God who speaks with power and authority. 
When there's devotion to prayer, corporate prayer, we're gathered together. What are we doing? We're gathering together to the throne of grace into the very presence of God. And how could there not be a growing awareness that we are in the presence of Almighty God when we're doing these things? So there was an awesome awareness that God was present and God was powerfully working in their midst. It wasn't just that. There was also joyful and lively worship. Joyful and lively worship. Verse 46 says, They had glad hearts. The word glad means extreme joy. Mega joy. Big joy. Got too much joy? I've never met someone who had too much joy. Not, not, not the good kind of joy. I've met drunk people who seem really happy. And I was once one. Oh, no, a real joy. Like the, John 16, ask and you'll receive that your joy may be full. Jesus said, I say all these things to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. And not joy just we put a smile on our face or joy because, hey, everything's hunky-dory. Man, these early Christians, it wasn't for them. I love how, I, I think it's maybe Acts 15. It says like they, they were chased out of town one time and they shook the dust off their feet and went on full of joy and the Holy Spirit. That's amazing. That is awesome. Our joy is so often tethered to how we're feeling physically, how much money we have, or how our job is going, all these circumstantial things. Their joy was in Christ. And there was lively worship. Verse 47 says they were praising God. Praise is a verb, and it appears to always include verbal praise, like coming from the mouth. I think it's fascinating. When the Holy Spirit was first poured out and the, the, the 120 in the upper room were speaking in tongues, it says that the crowd that gathered heard them. What, what did they hear them doing? Declaring the mighty deeds of God. They were praising God. So this praise is not just quiet, personal praise in our hearts. My heart is really praising God. But it's outward, exuberant praise. It speaks of lively praise. It's used in Acts chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Same word. After the lame man was healed, it says he was walking and leaping and praising God. And I just, I can't imagine him. He just, he's been, you know, an invalid for 40 years. He gets healed. And I can't imagine him walking and then leaping without shouting to. Right? He was praising with exuberance. We also see the, the result that these believers were having an effect upon the watching world. They were having a, an effect upon the world around them, the unbelieving world. Now, it wasn't necessarily their goal. It wasn't like they said, well, if we do these things, maybe, the, maybe, maybe unbelievers will be attracted. It wasn't like that at all. In fact, today it seems like more and more Christians and churches and denominations 
jettison biblical truth and biblical standards in order to curry favor with the world. That's not what these Christians were doing. Nevertheless, verse 47 does say that they were having favor with all the people. I think it had to have been the uniqueness and beauty of the human relationships. Outsiders were saying, look at how they treat one another. Look at how they're together. Look at how they love one. What Jesus said, right? When you love one another, people will know you're my disciples. Francis Schaeffer um, said the following. He said, true Christianity produces beauty as well as truth. If we do not show the beauty excuse me, if we do not show beauty in the way we treat each other, then in the eyes of the world and in the eyes of our children, we are destroying the truth we proclaim. Isn't that amazing? I was reading a book on preaching, or on pastoral ministry, and this guy said, don't let your life six days a week as a pastor destroy what you preached that one day a week. Same idea. We want the truth we proclaim to be adorned by the beauty of how we live together, how we treat one another. They, these Christians were committed to the truth, no doubt, but they were also committed to the practical, real-life implications of what they believed and people saw and were impacted. The way they lived together was compelling, but there's one more thing that was happening that I think is notable. The lost were being found. The last phrase of our text says, and the, Lord, and, the Lord, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, I don't know about you, but I want my life and I want this church to experience that. I really do. I, I know you do too. I think I know you do. We want that. The Lord adding to our number those who are being saved all the emphasis up into the last part of verse 47 seems to be on what the church was doing. They were devoted to certain things. They were praising God. They were eating with glad and generous hearts. They were communing with one another, fellowshipping with one another. And then we get to the last part of verse 47 and it says, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Of course, the Lord didn't do this apart from people speaking the gospel to others. But the Lord will grant the great blessing of new, Christ, of new life and excuse me, the, new, the blessing to Christians and a church that is devoted to his priorities. Amen? And so may we be devoted to these things. I was going to say in 2023, but why not just the rest of our lives, right? <laughs> I mean, th this is what the church, this is how the church was started and built and thrived and flourished and grew and was effective. And so, they were devoted to truth, may we be as well. They were devoted to the fellowship, may we be as well. Next Saturday night, we're going to gather here. We're going to play games, but you know, there's going to be fellowship too. <laughs> and part of the fellowship is the games. And as David said, the junk food. Um, they were devoted to the Lord's Supper, to the breaking of bread, to that visible sign 
of the gospel, the broken body, the poured out blood of Christ for us, to unite us. They were devoted to prayer. Wednesday night, come on over. Our home, it's open. We'll fit all of you in there. We'll find a way, all right? Let's be devoted to these things. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we worship you. We thank you for your great love. We do thank you, Father, for this example for us of the early church and what they were devoted to. We recognize, Father, that, that there was something, something explosive that happened. Your spirit was poured out. We long for that here. Your spirit to come and visit us with, with an unusual and extraordinary potency and... So we ask you to do that.